Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Monday, April 25th, 2022. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, by the time you hear these words, Elon Musk might already own Twitter. A big Java vulnerability has been patched. All of Mark Gurman's expectations for the iPhone 14. Where and by how much tech worker salaries are rising and why the struggles at Netflix might lead to worse television across the board. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Well... I wrote and recorded this segment last because I was trying to hold out for news to maybe happen before I published. Sources are saying that Twitter could reach a deal with Elon Musk for a takeover as soon as today. Twitter's board apparently met Sunday to discuss Musk's bid, which is being considered more seriously after Musk's filing actually detailed where all the financing was coming from, quoting Bloomberg. Twitter started warming up to a potential deal after Musk revealed a financing plan for the unsolicited bid that included backing from Morgan Stanley and other institutions. The situation is fluid and talks could drag on longer or fall apart, the people said. Still, the social media company is working to hammer out terms of a transaction and could reach an agreement as soon as Monday if negotiations go smoothly, according to the people who asked not to be identified because the information is private. Musk is lining up partners for the acquisition and continues to speak to potential co-investors, one of the people said, end quote. So at the time of this recording, it hasn't happened yet. But I'm just going to get this out and hope Elon doesn't scoop me between now and then. Reuters is reporting that the bid deal includes a risky $12.5 billion margin loan secured against Tesla stock and potentially costing around $1 billion a year alongside the $21 billion from Musk himself. Quote, More than two-thirds of the $46.5 billion in financing that Musk unveiled on Thursday in support of his bid for Twitter would come from his assets, with the remainder coming from bank loans secured against the social media platform's assets. This is the reverse of how most investors structure buyouts with debt secured against the assets of the target company, typically comprising the majority of the financing. The banks backing Musk's bid balked at providing more debt secured against Twitter, arguing that the San Francisco-based company did not produce enough cash flow to justify it, people familiar with the matter said. Some banks were also worried that financial regulators could reprimand them if they took on more risk, the sources added. This will have an impact on Musk's returns, since debt secured against an acquired company can greatly amplify profits. To double the $33.5 billion Musk is contributing out of his own fortune to the buyout, Twitter's value would have to go up by 1.4 times. Had he put in only a third of the deal consideration as equity, Twitter's value would have to go up by only 0.7 times for that money to double. What is more, Musk has agreed to take out a risky $12.5 billion margin loan secured against his stock of Tesla, the electric car maker that he leads, to pay for some of the $33.5 billion equity check. Were Tesla's stock to drop by 40%, he would have to repay that loan a regulatory filing shows. He had already borrowed against $88 billion worth of Tesla stock, and the proposed acquisition financing for Twitter would push that figure to more than $150 billion regulatory filing show. This would leave him little runway to get more cash out of Tesla shares in the short term, since Tesla executives may borrow no more than 25% of the value of their pledged stock. Musk's loan against his Tesla stock to finance his Twitter bid is also expensive, potentially costing him about $1 billion annually in interest and amortization expenses a regulatory filing shows. That gives him an incentive to refinance the proposed debt package at the earliest opportunity. It is not clear how much of the $21 billion in cash that Musk has committed to the deal is immediately available to him and whether he would have to cash out on some of his assets." End quote. 
Oracle has patched a critical bug in Java 15 and above, which let attackers forge TLS certificates and signatures, two-factor authentication messages, and more. Quoting Ars Technica. The vulnerability which Oracle patched on Tuesday affects the company's implementation of the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm in Java versions 15 and above. ECDSA is an algorithm that uses the principles of elliptic curve cryptography to authenticate messages digitally. A key advantage of ECDSA is the smaller size of the keys it generates compared to RSA or other crypto algorithms, making it ideal for use in standards including FIDO-based two-factor authentication, the security assertion markup language, OpenID, and JSON. Neil Madden, the researcher at security firm Forgerock, who discovered the vulnerability, likened it to the blank identity cards that make regular appearances in the sci-fi show Doctor Who. The psychic paper the cards are made of causes the person looking at it to see whatever the protagonist wants them to see. It turns out that some recent releases of Java were vulnerable to a similar kind of trick in the implementation of widely used ECDSA signatures, Madden wrote. If you're running one of the vulnerable versions, then an attacker can easily forge some types of SSL certificates and handshakes, allowing interception and modification of communications, signed JWTs, SAML assertions, or OIDCID tokens, and even WebAuthn authentication messages all using the digital equivalent of a blank piece of paper. He continued, It's hard to overstate the severity of this bug. If you are using ECDSA signatures for any of these security mechanisms, then an attacker can trivially and completely bypass them if your server is running any Java 15, 16, 17, or 18 version before the April 2022 critical patch update. For context, almost all WebAuthn slash FIDO devices in the real world, including YubiKeys, use ECDSA signatures, and many OIDC providers use ECDSA-signed JWTs, end quote. By the way, I'm sure I pronounced something wrong in this segment, but my apologies. As you heard, it was a whole alphabet soup, and I just didn't have time to try to look up all of the various pronunciations of that alphabet soup. Mark Gurman's newsletter this week is basically a roundup of everything he expects from this year's iPhone 14, including a larger 6.7-inch non-pro iPhone Max, while the pro models will get the A16 chip, a 48-megapixel wide-angle camera, and pill-shaped and circular notch cutouts. Quoting Bloomberg, First of all, the overall design from the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 will stick around another year. Expect the same flat edges and rounded corners, but as I've reported in the past, a new notch on the Pro models. There will also be a larger camera bump to fit in new sensors. That notch will include a pill-shaped cutout for Face ID and a circular cutout for the camera. That will be Apple's solution until it's able to fully embed Face ID and the front-facing camera into the display itself. Speaking of displays, one of the biggest differences in the iPhone 14 lineup is that Apple is shaking up its screen sizes. The relative sales performance of both the biggest and smallest sizes pushed Apple to rethink the lineup. The Max model is extremely popular, particularly in China, whereas the Mini doesn't sell well enough to even keep it around. So here's the solution Apple is planning for the iPhone 14. A 6.1-inch iPhone 14, a 6.7-inch iPhone 14 Max, a 6.1-inch iPhone 14 Pro, and a 6.7-inch iPhone 14 Pro Max. So for the first time, the non-Pro iPhone will get a 6.7-inch screen option. I think that version of the phone will be extremely popular, given that users will now be able to get Apple's largest iPhone size for at least $200 less than before. From what I've told, the new 48-megapixel sensor for the wide-angle camera, which is essentially the main camera 
on the iPhone will be exclusive to the Pro models. The regular iPhone 14 line will stick to a 12-megapixel shooter. And as has been reported, the Pro models will get Apple's new A16 chip, while the standard models are likely to stick to the A15 from last year or a variant of it. Beyond trying to make the Pro stand out, the chip shortage may have contributed to this decision. In addition to outward-facing upgrades, Apple is still working on bringing satellite connectivity to the iPhone. The company first aimed at adding that feature in last year's model, but now the capability could be ready this time around. To be clear, the iPhone won't be getting the ability to make calls over satellite networks. Instead, the feature is designed to report emergencies or send short texts to emergency contacts when out of cellular service range, end quote. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Some data points on the state of the tech job market for you. According to CompTIA, U.S. employers posted 1.1 million tech jobs in Q1 of this year, up 43% year-over-year. Average salaries rose 25% for cloud architects and 11% for just general engineers. This is from the years 2020 through this year, 2022, quoting the Wall Street Journal. 
The rising cost of hiring and retaining top tech talent is creating challenges for chief information officers and other tech leaders and has even caught the attention of chief executive officers. It's stunning, said Michael Burns, co-founder and executive chairman of Ideal Semiconductor Devices and managing director of the Murray Hill Group venture capital and private equity firm. Mr. Burns said wage increases in the tech sector can top 20%, and in hot markets such as Austin, Texas, they can hit 30%. Wage pressures are acute in Europe, too, according to Vineet Jain, founder and CEO of Ignite Incorporated. The enterprise file-sharing company employs 250 people in Poland, where the average wage increases are 50%, and some workers have doubled their pay during the past year, according to Mr. Jain. And these were not low-paid people, he said. Rising salaries aren't limited to veteran tech workers— Jai Bagat, a software engineer at HashiCorp, a San Francisco-based enterprise software company, said some hiring managers in the tech industry are offering recent graduates compensation packages in the six-figure range compared with starting salaries of seventy to 85000 a few years ago. Outsized gains in tech compensation, while increasingly common, aren't universal. An AT&T spokesperson said in an email that salary increases in that company's technology services organization averaged 5% this year. Cisco Systems, in an email, said average pay levels for its software engineers across the U.S. rose between 5 and 10% this past year, end quote. Sticking with numbers, think of this piece as sort of a bridge post to allow you to keep score on the state of play after Netflix's bad earnings last week. And then the big tech earnings this week, including for Meta, quoting CNBC. As of Friday's close, Netflix had a market cap of $99.2 billion, down from over $300 billion in November. Facebook did briefly join the Trillion Dollar Club last year, but it is now down to $532.6 billion. The past week was particularly bad for Netflix. The stock plummeted 35% on Wednesday, its worst day since 2004, after the streaming company said it lost subscribers for the first time in more than 10 years, and that it expects to lose as many as 2 million more in the current quarter. Facebook reports earnings this week. The stock has been under pressure since its last earnings report in February, when the company missed user number expectations and warned of increased competition from video apps like TikTok. Netflix is at its lowest price since January 2018, while Facebook hasn't been this low since April 2020. And then here are the cold hard numbers for you. Investors who got into Netflix and Facebook a decade ago are still solidly in the green, but newer shareholders are suffering. Here are the returns on a 10-year, 5-year, 3-year, and 1-year basis. If you got into Netflix 10 years ago, you're up 1,321%. Five years ago, you're still up 50%. But three years ago, if you got in, you're down 42.88%. And if you got in a year ago, you're down more than 57%. For Meta, if you invested in the stock 10 years ago, you're up 381%. Five years ago, you're up 28%. And three years ago, you're still up 1.47%. But if you invested in the last year, you're down 37.91%. And finally today, one more little bit of color for the streaming wars situation. According to this piece in Vanity Fair, streamers are starting to act like TV networks. They're pulling back on the edgy content that originally made streaming stand out and seeking instead, quote, elevated broadcasts, things like sitcoms. This is all under financial pressure from competition. I think Julia spoke to some of this to some degree in the Twitter space on Saturday, but quoting Vanity Fair, since streamers came to dominate the landscape, the assumption has been that broadcast TV is seriously endangered that it's struggling to reach new generations of viewers, partly because of its risk-averse rules and its devotion to broad, inoffensive content. 
That existential threat is real, but some see a worrisome irony emerging. The streamers are acting more and more like the cautious industry they revolutionized. Streamers are pursuing what they call elevated broadcasts, making sitcoms, dramas, procedurals, and reality TV central to their platforms. Some also appear to be pulling back from the challenging content that attracted audiences in hopes of scooping up every viewer the networks have left. Insiders say streaming executives are becoming less adventurous or more populist, depending on your point of view, because they're spooked by the overcrowded market and uncertain about how to keep expanding and retaining their subscriber bases. Netflix's stock price plunged after an earnings report projected a loss of 2 million global subscribers by June. A top executive there also said they are exploring a lower-priced subscription that would include commercials. I'm always a little bit worried that half the streamers will go away at a certain point, says Alan Yang, co-creator of unconventional comedies like Netflix's Master of None, Amazon's Forever, and Apple TV Plus's upcoming Loot. Can the market sustain all of them, spending the way they are and making the number of shows that they make? End quote. Netflix now abounds in escapist fare a la Emily in Paris and Love is Blind. Amazon, famously the home of Transparent and Fleabag, dedicates an immense amount of money to epics like The Wheel of Time and The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Paramount Plus is building a universe around Taylor Sheridan, creator of the Western mega-hit Yellowstone, and Peacock is betting on pop culture reboots to reel in both the nostalgic older audience and younger viewers who respond to tried-and-true templates. I hear this panic around the idea that some of these streamers are not going to exist in three years, and people get very conservative when that happens, says a showrunner. There's a real directive to agents and writers to broaden the appeal, which is crazily disheartening, end quote. I've got some Ride Home Fund news for you. I emailed the Ride Home Fund LPs about this this morning, that we've got our first unicorn in the portfolio. We've invested in AngelList itself. Basically, AngelList reached out to some of the more active GPs on their platform, which included us, and they offered us allocation in line with our recent investing activity. So... On behalf of the Ride Home Fund, I took all the allocation they give me, and now we're in on the AngelList Series B on the same terms as Tiger and Accomplice and everyone else that was in on that last round. Now, normally I don't get to announce to everyone our investments in the same quarter that we make them. I mean, the LPs all see the investments in close to real time, but for once, I can actually announce that we're investors in AngelList in the same quarter that we've made this investment, which makes for a unique opportunity. If you invest in the Ride Home Fund right now, I believe it is all the way up until June 1st, some portion of your money will go into this AngelList deal. So if you've ever wanted to invest in a unicorn company while it's still private, you can right now via the Ride Home Fund. More info, of course, on investing in the Ride Home Fund at ridehomefund.com. You do have to be an accredited investor, of course. But still, if that's been a dream of yours to own a piece of a unicorn, you can right now. Of course, we hope to have lots of unicorns eventually, but given that we're only eight months old as a fund, you know, that sort of thing takes time. So it's kind of fun to jump the line a bit in this case. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.